Hi all, thanks so much for joining us on Speaking of Making Healthcare Work For You. This is exciting because it's the first Making Healthcare Work For You series that we're doing, or the first of the series. And I'm Stephanie Fields, and my co-host for this series, which will be an ongoing series, is Dr. Apoorv Gupta, who is the Director for Performance Excellence at GuideHouse. And our first guest today is Mike Critelli, the co-founder of the Make Us Well Network. And we've talked to Mike before on the Founders Mission series, I'm really excited to talk to Mike about this. Today, we're going to be talking about um, his network, the Make Us Well Network's findings about the underappreciated root causes of COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths. So Mike, let's start and you tell us what is the Make Us Well Network and how did you get into studying COVID-19? Well, Make Us Well Network uh, was created at the time this was clear that it was going to be a crisis. And uh, one of the things that jumped out at me very early on was that this was not a crisis that randomly struck an otherwise healthy set of people. It was an accelerant for a lot of very vulnerable people. And it was both exposing and exploiting uh, vulnerabilities in health and healthcare that we had to use the crisis as an opportunity to address. If, if vaccines will solve the immediate problem of uh, deaths from uh, the virus, but it doesn't deal with the underlying structural issues that have put us where we are today. So my goal is to take the data that this crisis has exposed to us, the pathologies that it's exposed to us, and really try to address those so when you and I talked, it was a couple months ago now, and you were just beginning your work and you were just starting to find out about COVID. So what have you, what are the things that really stand out to you and who else is working on this with you? Well, obviously I am drawing upon my subscribers and charter members for insights, but the single biggest issue that we start with is the basically broken system for long-term care. Uh, the data nationwide and to some degree worldwide is that a disproportionate share of our deaths happen uh, to residents in nursing homes. But the answer is not all nursing homes. In any given state, there is a range from zero nursing homes deaths for COVID-19 in many nursing homes up to, in some instances, in excess of 50% of the residents passing away. So wow. clearly there is both a right way to deal with this problem in long-term care and a disastrous way. And we're living with the fact that 40% uh, of those who have died in this crisis are in the badly managed, badly performing, badly regulated nursing homes. We measure the wrong things and we don't measure the right ones. We are drowning in data but thirsting for insight. Whenever you and I talked before, one of the things that you mentioned was how important data was and using it correctly. And then also going back to your past life when you led the US response to anthrax, one of the things that you found was that everybody had an answer but didn't have a coordinated approach. And it sounds like that's kind of what it is now. We have so much data, but we're not doing the right things with it. Apoor, what were you gonna say? 
Yeah, no, Steph, uh, more along those lines as well. Um, you know, Mike, when you commented on that, I was wondering, what are some of those nursing homes doing that are doing it properly? They're pres presumably also awash in the data, uh, but uh, how are they able to get better insights? Can you give us maybe one or two examples? Yeah, the, uh, the number one predictor of death in a nursing home is how many people are in shared versus private rooms. So you've got to have smaller facilities with um, uh, some areas for isolation and containment. So when you pack a lot of people into uh, smaller spaces, and uh, we know there's a, actually a study in the province of Ontario where they created something called a crowdedness index in a nursing home. And the death rate in the crowded nursing home high crowdedness index, more than 2.2 residents per room, was more than double that of those that were under the 2.2. Secondly, ventilation. And there's a metric which is being used in Taiwan and Australia, which looks at carbon dioxide levels. If you think about it, we all breathe out carbon dioxide. And if there's a lot of carbon dioxide and it's not getting ventilated out of the room, that means that what we are breathing out is spreading to other people, it's staying in the room. Mm -hmm. So at 600 parts per million, it's a well-ventilated room. At 2000 parts per million, it is a poorly ventilated room. And there is no reporting or metric in the United States on that subject. You have to go abroad to see controlled studies on disease transmission. The third one, which is alluded to in some studies, is the level of nursing home staffing per resident, how many hours per resident. And that applies not just to infectious disease control, but chronic disease management. And then finally, uh, relative humidity. Uh, now in the near term, of course, what we've seen in Connecticut and other places was the slowness in getting testing and masks to the nursing homes. So uh, there were a lot of deaths early on in Connecticut because the state was months behind in getting um, PPE to the staff and testing of the staff coming into the nursing homes. And if you look at all the other reporting like Medicare star ratings, uh, number of uh, infect inspection deficiencies, uh, for-profit versus not-for-profit, they either don't correlate to deaths or they are very uneven. But what correlates is not required to be reported. Or mm -hmm. if it is reportable, you have a great deal of difficulty finding it. That was one of the things I noticed when I was researching before this interview, that there's just so many inconsistencies in how data is reported and what data is reported. There were some things that, um, I can't remember offhand which one it was, but it was one specific data point and it only had 12 of 50 states that reported that type of data. And it's just fascinating that it's not consistent, which is something that Apoorv and Mike, we've all talked about in our interviews before, is that communication could really solve so much of this because nobody's on the same page. Yeah, we do not provide data for people who have to decide which nursing home to put their loved ones in. In New York State, if you leave a nursing home and die in the hospital, but you contracted the virus in the nursing home, it is not reported as a nursing home death. 
whereas in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and most other states, it is. So New York understates the percentage of deaths in nursing homes. So Mike, Mike, one thing I was thinking as you were listing out some of the, the findings that you've had, um, is that something you would suggest family members uh, should, be, should be looking out for when they're helping uh, their, their family try to pick out a nursing home? Oh, absolutely. And because it's relevant to whether their loved one is going to get uh, a seasonal flu mm. and relative to staffing, are they going to get taken care of in terms of getting out and moving around uh, to avoid pressure sores and other sorts of uh, conditions that arise when people are immobile for too long each day. And uh, that data is almost impossible to find. Uh, you, have to, you have to be a sophisticated researcher. I've hired a woman who did a lot of work for Cerner over the last couple months, uh, who is an expert at looking at Medicare and Medicaid data but you shouldn't have to look there and pull data in from multiple sources to find out the things that I'm talking about today. It should be easy to find. So what can people do? We should start by getting the government to mandate a different kind of reporting. There is a, a fortunately an emerging HHS initiative, which I'm going to try to take advantage of called Meaningful Metrics. And we need to tackle what we think should be reported. And the advantage of the kind of reporting I'm talking about is it doesn't require a lot of labor on the part of nursing home operators. Uh, if we do it right, it, a lot of this can be passive data capture using digital health monitoring tools. And you could imagine software, for example, that reports on uh, you know, payroll uh, through the number of, you know, once that data is entered into the nursing home system, it can be passively captured uh, by regulators and reported out to people who want to get real-time information. It's expensive to set up, but once it's set up, the data capture is passive and it can be real-time. Is that something that you're going to work on with them, that you're going to try to work with HSS on? Yes, I want to. I want to continue to do my homework. I've got a few more people to talk about, and then I'm going to come up with a SWAT team inside my network to go to H to figure out the best way into HHS. I did that when I uh, ran the Anthrax program. I did that with the Intelligent Mail Barcode program, and later on with the Dossier Consortium. I did that in going to the FDA to try to get them to change the whole. Uh, opportunity for all of us to get access to our uh, lab tests without waiting for the doctor to uh, tell us uh, when he or she wants wanted to give us access. So I've done this before. Uh, there's a blueprint for how to do it, but you have to start by doing your homework. And so I'm in the latter stages of doing my homework. What can you tell us about how long you think that it, it takes, you know, for for a mandate uh, for, for the new data to emerge? And what should people do until that happens? Is there anything that an individual can do to you know, make a better selection of a nursing home? It's a good question. And um, there, you can always in individual cases ask questions. With the network's findings and all the studies related to COVID, when you and I talked before, 
You talked about the lack of communication or the miscommunication with things like masks. You said if it were communicated more in a way of wearing masks could also help you protect yourself, that you think there would have been better compliance. And we're still seeing, you know, disparaging rates between different ethnicities. We're still seeing people fight the masks. What, where do you think we stand now from a couple months ago and now with the vaccine throwing another component that people, you know, are kind of up and down about whether they can find it, whether they're going to get it. What are you seeing about this and what do you think those key findings are? Well, one of the other five areas that I'm focusing on and my partner is about to publish something. He and I divided up the labor relative to the vaccines into two pieces. He's focusing on the communications and the complete breakdown and how it disadvantages certain populations. I'm more focused on the broken logistics and supply chain. I'm in Florida, but I can go to Connecticut. And if, if everything else fails, I will go to my town hall and I know the head of the Department of Health and they will tell me the best way to sign up. But if I am a, uh, a Latino or a black person or another immigrant who speaks, uh, who's really not conversant of how the world works in the United States, I am completely at a loss to figure out how I'm going to get in the queue. And one of the other, like say here in Florida, if I really wanted to do it, I talked to a the wife of a good friend of mine, and she basically gave me the roadmap on how to get online for Collier County, where I am, and you know which site to go to, and how many times I needed to access it before it, you know, because it would crash. And since I have Wi-Fi service in my home, my condo, I can do that. But if I'm in a community where I have no Wi-Fi service and let's say I have to go to the public library to get access to the internet. Um, I don't have a way of getting, even getting an appointment. And I'm gonna end up being in the back of the queue because I don't, I don't know people that have already figured out how to work around system deficiencies. And I don't know uh, if, I'm, if I'm a low income individual, I may not have the ability to hang on the internet for hours and do something else until uh, it becomes available to me to sign up somewhere. And I may not be able to take a full day off to wait in line like I'm going to a rock concert, uh, which somebody else could. So that's just one small example. The other one, which is another one of my pods of activity is what I would call social determinants of health. One of the dirty little secrets of this virus if you look at the numbers in LA County, San Diego County, uh, South Texas counties, is that the single biggest predictor of COVID-19 uh, infections and death rates is severely overcrowded housing, mostly with recent immigrants. But if you were to try to link those two data points together, it would be very, very difficult to do it. I was reading the same thing just all these different sources, again, preparing for this interview. And I read that um, overcrowded housing, uh, particularly in urban environments, and then also multi-generational households was an issue because you have these younger people who are going to school, the children are going to school, and then you have the grandparents living at home. 
and then they're getting sick with COVID-19 and then it's just a circle. And if there's more people in a consolidated area going back to the nursing homes, but also with, um, you know, some of the immigrants and the other things, it's all access to care. It's all barriers that's allowed, whether it's Wi-Fi, whether it's location, whether it's not knowing how to navigate the system, there are barriers in place. So again, until you work with HSS and you get this new system in place, which again, I'm confident you will, what do people do? What can we tell those people living in those situations? How do they help if they can't socially distance themselves from one another in the homes or they can't be in a different room or they're stuck in that nursing home now? What the heck do people do? There's an awful lot of data on ventilation and airflow where people can be in the same space and can minimize their risk of carrying the virus to someone else. And it may be that you need something to move the, moves the air that you breathe upward rather than outward. Uh, and you can find inexpensive fans with which to do that. But it takes somebody who understands the science of infectious disease transmissions mm -hmm. and uh, ventilation, being able to open windows and getting a carbon dioxide monitor. If I were, you know, that it's not easily affordable by these by these families, but maybe they can uh, uh, use uh, a legal aid attorney to demand carbon dioxide monitors and force uh, improvements uh, in the environment in which they're living to get better ventilation and better relative humidity um, and really declare those places as being unsafe. There are organizations like one of our members is the CEO of Building One Community. And she goes to bat for a lot of recent immigrants, whether they're documented or undocumented, to make sure that they have good living conditions in which to work. Are you aware of, of folks that have been able to pilot any such initiatives in these uh, vulnerable communities, given that they've had so many decades of, of inequities and, and real difficulty with accessing even the simplest of materials? Uh, but, uh, you know, is, or is that your, your plan to maybe pilot this in some communities? Well, frankly, in the short term, our best targets are those workers who work in the nursing homes and in the hospitals and uh, are in other essential jobs. And the fact that there are vacant dorm, dormitory units in local, in local colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but you're going to need an intermediary like building one community. And there are, there are organizations like that sprinkled throughout the country and they are coordinating strategies with one another. I think uh, the Urban Land Institute, Gensler, some of the major urban planning organizations uh, need to be brought into the fold to do things. Uh, so there are pockets of activity the broader question of uh, affordable housing uh, is a big one. And the first thing we need to understand is it's not about population density. It's about severely overcrowded housing, which mm. means more than one and a half people per room. Mm. Second issue is the, the ventilation. And the third issue is humidity. So we've got to do some very basic education and one of the things I wanna do through the network is 
is to talk to people in the media about these topics. And what is that message that you need them to get out for you? Overcrowdedness, ventilation, humidity, and just prudent hygiene tactics like mask wearing and to the degree that you can physical distancing. We're not going to get down to zero cases or deaths from this, but we can, for the time being, make it better. And, and going back to my initial point, the goal here is not to just solve this problem at this time, but to deal with the longer term issues of hygiene, health monitoring, uh, long term care, uh, social determinants of health in terms of overcrowding, uh, distribution and communications, and uh, what I would call uh, inequitable health access. Formidable, formidable undertaking, Mike. Really, you know, commend uh, you for creating this network to take this on because these have certainly been uh, the healthcare challenges that that uh, you know plagued the system. What is your sense of the timescale within which something like this winds up uh, playing out? It's a very good question, and um, if I look back at my path toward both postal transformation and postal reform, there was a sprinkling of very short-term wins combined with things that took years. So mm -hmm. I expect we're going to have some of both. Mm -hmm. And the main thing is you get some quick wins that are high impact, low visibility, uh, and you build confidence that and you cohesion. And you look for those things that are going to have a lot of impact but aren't recognized as such, so they don't draw a lot of opposition. One of the most important things when we deal with chronic diseases and social determinants is very small things can have a big impact. Um, and I have learned over the years by just asking people, what are the small confidence builders that will tell you that things have changed? and that you can do without spending any money or can, you can do it without spending a lot of money. What do you anticipate some of those will be here in this area, Mike, some of the quick wins? In terms of access to healthcare, um, telehealth and digital health monitoring uh, that stays in place and improves uh, can be done at a state-by-state -state level uh, but we may be able to do it through Medicare and Medicaid to mm -hmm. force it on the 50 states. Uh, there are still some silly rules that we have to change, I'm sure. I don't know what they are because they're <laughs> all over the lot, but I'm sure that there are things we can do to expand the use of telehealth or mm -hmm. to make telehealth work better than it's working today. Mm -hmm. And there's a gentleman in our network, uh, uh, Matt McCambridge, who runs a company called Eden Health. And I'm gonna have him probably do a posting on some of the things he's doing successfully with telehealth for the corporate employer populations that should be standard operating procedure for lower income populations. That's really, I love that because that's something that you also talked about. So that was so important with COVID-19 is that a lot of the problems do stem from people who have these chronic conditions and they're the ones having these problems like the elderly people in the nursing homes. Many of them have chronic conditions that are causing them to become particularly ill and die from COVID. Mm -hmm. And so the telehealth situation really will help hopefully proactively address that. 
Is that part of the hope that you're going to stop them from getting so sick? Yeah, and one of the problems with telehealth is a little quirk where the nursing home requires physicians to enter data onto the nursing home's health record system, which is different from that of the hospital or healthcare system in which they are working. So something along the lines of having an interface where the same data goes into both systems mm -hmm. and gets forced to happen that way so that telehealth can be used more. Some of our clients, what they're saying is, don't come to us with another telehealth solution. Uh, that's only exacerbating the digital divide. Uh, you know, so the the vulnerable populations, again, you were talking about that maybe not aren't even able to access telehealth. It's a whole lot less expensive to say to the hospital, anybody that's uh, in your patient population for which you have a uh, uh, a risk, you have an obligation to take care of. If they don't have a smartphone, you'll give them a smart smartphone, and you'll give them access to a subscription from one of the carriers hmm. that should be uh day that should be really a a basic provision in every risk and gain sharing contract and you're seeing companies mike that are that are already trying that i would guess that some that i know are doing things like that i know people are giving coupons out i don't know of anybody that's actually giving devices out one of the problems in giving devices out is you have to monitor and manage them and you get into the question of, uh, you know, who's who owns the device and who's managing its access and availability. But if you give people coupons to go to a local Verizon store, AT&T store, what I would do, and we did something like this years ago at Dacia, we worked with uh, faith-based organizations and senior centers in New York City. And we did a pilot with the New York City Department of Public Health, 51 different faith-based organizations and senior centers. And we did blood pressure monitoring when they came in for their, uh, their weekly visit to the church or their frequent visit to the senior center. Mm -hmm. So each community is gonna have a different community hub where, that you would use to do that. It may be the pharmacy. In some mm -hmm. communities, the pharmacy may be the best place to do this because they come in and they're uh, at some point they're getting a medication or they're buying uh, over the counter drugs. You approach problems from, a, you know, like you could say out of the box to, to coin a key term, but yeah. it, it just feels like you're coming at it from, as you said, an outsider perspective. So could you share a little bit more about how you develop that perspective and how you would encourage the rest of us to be uh, thinking the same way, because that's what it's really going to take to solve some of these long-standing issues. I, I have the orientation of a certain kind of scientist. And if you look at the scientific method, it's, um, it's based in its purest form on the, th on the idea of a hypothesis that you test. And if you see something that doesn't fit the hypothesis, then you re-examine the hypothesis. And so you self-consciously look for anomalies. How do we make these anomalous successes scalable? I look for those examples and then just 
uh, when anybody says it can't be done, I said, well, then tell me why they were able to do it. So Mike, thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to continue watching what the Make Us Well Network does. I know you're only getting started. And thank you both for being here. Thanks for thank joining you. us. Bye. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you.